Our scripture lesson this evening is taken from Luke chapter 18, page 1208 in the Pew Bible, page 1208. And we'll look at Luke 18, beginning at verse 18 and reading through verse 27. Luke 18, verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, These things which are impossible with men are Possible with God. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. In conjunction with it, I'd like to draw your attention to Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 9 in the back of the Psalter hymnal. Lord's Day 2, page 9, which asks this question How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved of the Lord, the lesson of this Lord's Day is very easy to understand, but very hard to apply. It's very easy to understand that measuring something against a fixed standard will reveal whether that thing that you're measuring measures up or not. It's very easy to understand that if we want to know if we're good, we measure ourselves against the standard of goodness. We compare ourselves to the law and we see how we measure up. That's an easy concept to understand. But getting people to actually see their sin 
and acknowledge and confess their sin, that is a very difficult matter. And we'll see that when we look at the passage in Luke 18 that is before us this evening. For Jesus does this very thing. He uses the law to try to show someone his sin. And we're left with an impression here that perhaps Jesus was not successful. For the man went away sorrowful. Although in one of the other Gospels, there is a note of hope. In one of the other Gospels, it tells us that Jesus loved him. And we know that if Jesus loves someone, it's hard to resist that love. His love indeed is irresistible. Jesus loved Saul of Tarsus long before he became Paul the Apostle. And when they finally met on the Damascus Road, Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus, It's hard, isn't it? To kick against the goads. Uh, Jesus had been goading him, prodding him, pointing him in the right direction. And Paul had been vigorously, like an animal against the cattle prod, fighting to go the opposite direction. But it was hard and getting harder and harder for Paul. And and so I... I would like to believe, although we can't know with any certainty, that the love of God finally prodded this uh, young man, whom we'll we'll look at in a moment, uh, uh, into the kingdom. But let's look at that situation then and how Jesus deals with it. Uh, Who is this who who comes to Jesus asking, uh, what must I do to uh, inherit eternal life? And how did Jesus deal with him? And, and after he departed, how did Jesus uh, speak of the matter to his disciples? That's what we want to consider tonight. First of all, we note that a, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus seeking eternal life. Uh, Luke describes him as a certain ruler. And in verse 23 tells us he is very rich. Uh, he doesn't mention his, Luke doesn't mention his age. But Matthew does, in Matthew's account of this, Matthew 19.20, he's called a young man, and so he is now known in in church circles as the rich young ruler. Now, because he's a young ruler, it's highly unlikely that he is Jewish. Uh, He is far more likely, because he is young, to be a Gentile or a God-fearing Gentile, perhaps one who was raised in a a Gentile, God-fearing home. I don't know if you've taken note of this, but there's a lot of mention of God-fearing Gentiles in the New Testament. Uh, There was the the centurion who, in Matthew chapter 8, comes to Jesus and asks that Jesus heal his servant and says to Jesus, you don't have to come to my house, just say the word because uh, I too am a man under authority. And Jesus marvels uh, at uh, this man's faith saying, I haven't found such faith in all of Israel. Here's here's a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile who has greater faith than the people of Israel. Uh, There's another God-fearing Gentile in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, also a centurion, Cornelius who had a vision of uh, an angel telling him to send to Joppa and get Peter to come and tell you the good news and so forth. He was a God-fearing Gentile. Uh, The Ethiopian eunuch was a God-fearing Gentile. We should take pause a moment and remember that the first Gentile to come to faith in the New Testament was an African. 
and probably therefore a man of uh, dark skin. And at the rate the church is growing on uh, the African continent today, uh, unless uh, some something uh, should happen uh, to the contrary, I think uh, given present numbers, there probably be more dark-skinned people in heaven than and in the new heavens and the new earth than the light-skinned people, because uh, God is no respecter of color. He doesn't look, he doesn't judge on the basis of appearance, and neither should we. Uh, Lydia was a God-fearing Gentile. In fact, you have to search pretty hard to find a pagan conversion story in the New Testament. We know that there were pagans converted. Uh, Paul tells us that most of the Corinthian church were pagans when they came to Christ, but we don't hear their story. We don't hear how they came to faith in Christ uh, the closest that we, we have, I think, is the Philippian jailer, or even there, it's, it's not certain that he was a pagan, but uh, there's no evidence he was God-fearing Gentile either. But, so uh, we give him the, the credit of being the one pagan whose conversion story is uh, conveyed in the New Testament. Well, this young man is probably, because he's young and a ruler, and the Jews didn't uh, put young people into ruling positions, but the Gentiles did, particularly the Romans, uh, would uh, reward wealthy people with positions of power, or uh, the Caesar might reward a general who had uh, won a great battle for him by saying, uh, you have a son, he needs a position, I'll, I'll, I'll appoint your son to be governor over here or there or whatever, and uh, so uh, and also positions were inherited, and so young people in the Gentile world could become rulers uh, by inheritance as well as by uh, appointment, uh, carrying the favor of those who are higher up in power. Well, this prob- uh, guy is probably one of these uh, God-fearing Gentiles, and I think it's confirmed by the fact that he comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher. The Jews didn't do that. They didn't use the adjective good. They would say rabbi or teacher, but they wouldn't say good teacher. They, they weren't that respectful. But a, a Gentile who, who knows he's an outsider uh, approaching the Jews, and he is a God-fearing Gentile who respects the Jews, wants to show his respect, his heartfelt respect, uh, by going a little, little further than what the Jews would do in addressing Jesus. And so he calls him good teacher, not a common expression among the Jews. Now, he comes to Jesus with a very good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And from his his answer to Jesus' first remarks to him, we we know that he he knows the law of God, and he's been zealous for the law of God since his youth, although he's still young, so it wasn't for that long. But uh, he knows the commandments, and he is striving to obey them. Uh, He is a pious, godly young man. But his answer also, or his question, reveals some uneasiness. Although he's been striving to obey the law, he's not certain he's done enough. Or he's not certain he's done everything that he needs to do. And so he's wondering, is there, is there something else? I, I, I've been striving to obey the law, but I don't have any great assurance yet. And so I'm coming to you, good teacher. Tell me, is there something that I'm missing? Something that I, I haven't done yet that I need to do? I, I want to have assurance. Well, his unease 
regarding whether he has done enough is the unease of everyone who thinks that eternal life is given to those who earn it, who work for it, who get it because they deserve it, because they've lived a good life. If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? And you answered, well, I hope so. I'm trying to be one. That answer would indicate that perhaps you too are laboring under the uh, misapprehension that, that the Christian life is, is rules and regulations and that to be a Christian you have to obey those rules and regulations and, and our reward will be based on how well that we have done that. Uh, this, is, this is the way the world thinks. Good things come to those who work for it. And uh, if you want to get anything good, you have to work for it. And the world is insulted by the gospel. The world takes offense at the gospel that, that they need grace, that they need a Savior, that they need to be given charity in order to obtain eternal life. Who are you to tell me that I need a Savior? Granted, I may not be as good as I, I could be, but any mis- uh, any misdeeds that I have performed will certainly be outweighed by all my good deeds. And uh, if there is a God, he knows that I mean well and that I try hard. And people expect to be rewarded for their labors. But if you labor under that idea that salvation is something that you work for, something that you earn, you can never in this life have assurance because you still have a conscience. <laughs> And that conscience is telling you that you're not as good as you could be. That, yeah, sometimes I lose my temper. Sometimes I say things that I regret. Sometimes I do things that I, I, I don't want publicized. And uh, maybe I even done, did something really bad once. But that was only once. And, and again, I hope my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. And so, though we still have a conscience that accuses us of doing wrong, we have some confidence, but not as much as we would like, that that in the end will turn out all right. Well, he comes to Jesus with his lack of assurance based on the idea that he has to earn his way into heaven. He comes with his question, and Jesus looks at him and sees his need and responds to him according to his need. How does Jesus respond? Well, the first thing he does is he challenges him with regard to that adjective good. Why do you call me good? Now, we know that Jesus can read people's hearts, and Jesus knows why this young man is calling him good. And he recognizes that he's, he's doing it for the wrong reason. He's not doing it because he recognizes that Jesus is divine. Be assured, Jesus is not denying his divinity, saying, you ought not to call me good because I am not good. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, why are you doing it? Not you ought not to do it, but why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you think that all human beings are basically good? And that Jewish people also are good and Jewish teachers are good? Are, are you doing it because you readily would give this title, this adjective to, to those you see around you? Every, everyone except perhaps the, the most uh, depraved of sinners you would call good? Well, you need to learn 
that you shouldn't do that. Jesus is rebuking him for believing that people in general are basically good. This young man needs to learn that human beings are not good, that they are by nature, they have a tendency not only to sin, but to actually hate God and hate their neighbor. That when we are measured against the Ten Commandments and the summary of the law as we find it in the Catechism, we all fall short of the mark. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each has gone his own way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Nobody is righteous. The human heart is full of deceit. It's full of evil. Only uh, the desires of man's heart are only evil all the time, as God says in Genesis 6. And the human heart is deceitful. And one of its deceits is to deceive itself into thinking that it's, it's not evil, that it's, it's basically good. That's what Jesus wants this young man. The first lesson that he wants to teach him is that, is that he, that young man, is a sinner. You shouldn't call me good if you think I'm just another human being, and you shouldn't think of yourself as a good man. But telling him that doesn't bring the young man to confess his sin, and Jesus recognizes that, so Jesus goes on and says something else to him. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. I don't know why Jesus changes the order of the commandments. Perhaps there's some significance in that for this young man, that this young man uh, uh, has done fairly well with the, the seventh commandments, and not so well with the, uh, the sixth commandment and uh, the Eighth Commandment, even worse, and perhaps he's building up to a crescendo, the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother. Or maybe it's the other way around, uh, I don't know. But Jesus, for some reason, is reciting these commandments to this young man to show him his sin. But, again, it doesn't seem to get through. It's... It's an easy concept to understand. Measure yourself against the commandments. But getting people to see their sin by comparing them to the commandments, this young man isn't getting the point. He says, all of these I have kept since my youth. So, Jesus tries again. And he says, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Jesus, the man has asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is is telling him he's got to obey, he's got to work, he's got to sell all that he has and give to the poor and lay up treasure in heaven and come follow Jesus. Is Jesus contradicting his own teaching? You know, Luke chapter 18 begins with the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee who boasts of his obedience to the law, how he he keeps uh, all the commandments. 
And then it shows us the tax collector who's ashamed to even lift his eyes to heaven and cries out, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's it's the man who cries for mercy and confesses his sin who went home justified, not the man who boasted about his, his obedience to the law. Now Jesus is giving commandments as in answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, in essence, the crowd on Pentecost pretty much asked the same question when they were convicted that they had crucified the Lord of glory, and they asked, what do we have to do? Well, repent and be baptized, you know. Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why isn't Jesus saying that? Well, Jesus knows that before this man can hear the call to believe in Jesus Christ, he has to believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And this man hasn't yet recognized his sin. And so Jesus is using the law, just like the catechism says, to, to show him his sin. And this last commandment in particular, Jesus knows the heart of this young man and knows that, that he has trouble in the area of money. He's rich. And like many people, he has trouble, spiritual trouble, because of his riches. Paul warns, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And through this craving, there are some who have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul is concerned about rich people, and not just rich people in general. He's worried about rich people in the church who are going to pierce themselves with many griefs and wander from the faith because of the love of riches. And here he sees this love of money in this young man's heart. And so he's warning him. Really, he's, he's, he's simply re- reciting another commandment, only he's putting it in a way that applies directly to this young man's life. It's the first commandment. A little earlier in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus taught, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Can't serve God and money. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods beside me. And there are lots of people in this world who have a God other than the true God, and their God is money. That's what's going on here. This young man loves his money. His money is more important to him than God. What is idolatry? It's having something alongside of God or in place of God that is more important than God. And for this young man and for many even in the church, money is their God. And so Jesus wants to convict him of that sin. You know, this sounds like Jesus is making a tremendous demand on this young man. But in reality, it's not a whole lot different than the group of men standing around Jesus have already done. The only difference is the amount of money they've given up. All of the disciples gave up their jobs by which they earned their money. And we're told they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, they didn't do that in an irresponsible way. Jesus took them back to Galilee and Capernaum and and Bethsaida uh, from time to time so that they could 
take care of the earthly needs of their families and so forth. But nevertheless, they made great sacrifice and great financial sacrifice for the sake of following Jesus. Early in the New Testament, we read of people who also made great financial sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of people in need. People were selling houses and selling land and laying the money at the apostles' feet. They weren't just giving out of their income, a tenth of their income. They were selling principle. They were selling income-producing property. They were impoverishing themselves. Not out of compulsion. It was voluntary. It was done as an act of love. But it was nonetheless a great financial sacrifice. Nobody considered anything they had their own, but they shared freely. We hear this Paul, go sell all that you have. And it sounds really strange. And one of the reasons it sounds so hard is because we haven't really captured the spirit of the New Testament church that was willing to sell income-producing property in order to meet the needs of the saints. But Jesus doesn't command everyone to go sell everything that you have. But he does expect you to be generous with what you do have. He does expect you to at least meet the minimum standard for the Old Testament, which is 10% of your income. If you haven't done that, if you say, no, I can't afford to do that, that's too much, then maybe Jesus is still having a hard time getting through to you to show you how much you love your money more than you love Him. The young man went away sorrowful, not because he was convicted of his sin, but because he was very wealthy. At this point, he still loved his money more than he loved God. We can hope that the love of Jesus later got to him and he, he learned to not love his money more than he loved God. But at this point, Matthew tells us, Luke doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us at this point he left. And then Jesus turned to his disciples to not leave them without hope. He wants to teach them how the rich may indeed be saved. And the first thing that Jesus says is almost sounds as if they can't. Because he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is a, a metaphor of impossibility. It is physically impossible to put a camel through the eye of a needle. We're talking about a sewing needle here. I know that some of you may have heard... Uh, it's, it's popular in some circles to say that there was a gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the eye of a needle, which a camel could get through if it got down on its knees. And so if the rich will get down on their knees and humble themselves, they can be saved. Well, that would make possible what Jesus says is impossible. And 
if you want to read a refutation of that, find Matthew Henry, Matt, uh, William Hendrickson's uh, commentary on uh, this passage. I'm not sure whether it's the Luke or the Matthew uh, commentary, but he debunks that uh, story that is uh, spread about to try to encourage rich people to humble themselves and assure them that they, uh, they can be saved. No, Jesus says it's impossible. It, it's, it just can't be done. Now, why is it so hard for rich people to be saved? Well, uh, Tim Keller, in one of his sermons, gives some uh, reasons that uh, I'll briefly summarize for you. Uh, four things. First of all, he says, uh, money monopolizes your attention. Money monopolizes your attention. If, if you are devoted to getting rich, it's going to take all your attention. You know, the word business is just an alternate spelling of the word busyness. Uh, if you're in business to make money, if that's what your life is about, you are going to be busy with it all the time to the neglect of things that really matter, to the neglect of your personal relationships with your family and your relationship with God and spiritual things. People who are devoted to the things of this world and pursuing wealth neglect the things that really matter. Also, money is very dangerous because it gives a false sense of security. Having money makes you think that you're in control and that you can protect yourself and therefore you don't need God. You know, the, the proverb says, uh, don't make me rich so, so that I, may, I forget you, God. Uh, I have money. Money will take care of me. Well, if you think money can take care of you, uh, remember Steve Jobs. You know the name Steve Jobs? Co-founder of Apple Computer, multimillionaire, billionaire Steve Jobs, CEO of Apple Computer, got pancreatic cancer, died at the age of 58. All his money, all his billions couldn't protect him. And I don't care how much money you have, uh, your money can't protect you from from disease and from death and the grave. It, it can't protect you from your children becoming rebellious uh, teenagers and, and drug users. It can't uh, protect you from the alienation of the affections of your wife who is so disgusted with you because uh, all you do is think about money. Uh, it can't protect you from uh, uh, thieves who, who break in and steal and, and rob you and embezzle your money. Uh, again and again I hear stories of... Uh, Financial advisors on Wall Street who embezzle the money of their clients and, and get rich quick schemes where, where people lose their money. You think you're safe, but you're not. There are all kinds of ways that God can and does get to the rich to show them that money can't protect them. Thirdly, money also makes you think you're capable of, of handling anything which, which comes up. You know, in order to make money, you have to be smart. And so, I've made a lot of money, so I'm smart. And because I'm smart, I can trust my judgment, and I can even trust my intuition. And how often do we hear of, of rich people who, who, who lose, lose their shirt in some deal because they, they were overconfident. They, they trusted their intuitions rather than doing their homework. They thought, you know... I, I'm smart. I have a history of making good decisions, and so I can trust my instincts and trust my intuition. And so it, it leads to this false sense of security, and, and it leads to doing stupid things and very foolish things. 
But fourthly, it also inflates your ego and leads to pride and arrogance and disdain of those who are not able to do what you did. You lose compassion for the needy and you become a selfish, hard-hearted tightwad. You say, why don't, why don't those poor people just do an honest day's work? And you dismiss the need to be generous to those who are in need. Yes, money is very dangerous. Poor people are, are susceptible to all these dangers. You don't have to have money to be guilty of loving it and coveting it and, and devoting every uh, living moment to trying to get it. But those who have money are especially vulnerable to these dangers. But now, note, Jesus does qualify his metaphor of impossibility by saying that what is impossible for man is possible with God. All mankind, not just rich people, are incapable of saving themselves. All mankind is ensnared by sin. All mankind is entrapped by sin. All mankind is enslaved by sin. All mankind is powerless to break free from sin. God's grace is more powerful than our sin. His kindness, His mercy, His unearned favor, His unconditional love, His promised mercies can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He can save the rich and all sinners by the power of his love. That's how Job, a very rich man, was saved. That's how Abraham, a very rich man, was saved. That's how Jacob and uh, Isaac and Jacob and King David and King Solomon, all very rich men, they were saved, not by their own strength, not by their riches, but by the grace of God's love reaching down into their lives and doing for them what they could not do for themselves. But how does God save rich people? Well, the same way he saves poor people. He does two things. He uses the law to show them their sin. He brings the law to bear on their lives as Jesus brings the law to bear on this man's life. As I have used the law to bring it to bear on your life and ask you tonight whether you love money more than you love God. He uses the law to show us our sin. And then secondly, he points us to the other rich young ruler. There's another rich young ruler here, isn't there? How old is Jesus? Just 30, 33 years old at the time of the end of his ministry, his earthly ministry. That's, that's a young man. And he was exceedingly rich. <laughs> Everything belongs to him. When he was in heaven with his Father, he created all things, and all things were from him and for him and to him. The Father gave him everything. He was exceedingly rich. What did he do with his riches? Well, he emptied himself. He gave up his riches. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up all the riches and glories of heaven. He, he was stripped of everything and hung naked on the cross and then gave up his life 
and gave it all up for the poor. For you and for you and I, who are poor, poor because we have no spiritual resources with which to recommend ourselves to God. We are corrupt in the sight of God, by nature prone to hate both God and our neighbor, incapable of doing anything good apart from His grace. He gave up all His riches so that we might be made rich in the grace of life. Jesus points us to the other rich rung ruler, to see in him the one who can save us, who has saved us by giving up everything and giving it to us so that we who have nothing can now stand clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and stand in the judgment and not be afraid. Thanks be to God for the other rich young ruler who died to make us rich in the grace of life. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that you use the law to show us how far we have fallen short. And if we have loved money more than we have loved you, we pray that we may repent of that and respond with generous, glad hearts 